agricultural pacifist. Unconditional lover I don't want to shop at Walmart Don't want to grow Monsanto Don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no I don't want to burn petrol Don't want to eat perfect fruit Don't want to feel guilty I just want to be Countercultural, pacifistic Unconditionally loving organic gardener Punks. Did you know that 2018 is the 50th anniversary of the year that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated? Here's a question for you. Have you ever talked to your family members or maybe your church family members, the ones that were alive 50 years ago, to ask what it was like? To ask what they thought about that happening? To ask how they were involved or not in the civil rights movement? Do you know any of their stories? Were they distanced from it? Were they resistant to it? What was your church doing back then? Have you ever thought about that? This year marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know about you, but I wasn't alive 50 years ago, and I'm guessing that a lot of our Dunker Punk listeners weren't either. Still, even though we might not have been alive, the legacy of Dr. King and the civil rights movement and the response and resistance of many, including, really uh, importantly, the white Christian churches, is something that we have inherited. In this episode, Tori and Gimbia talk about Dr. King's legacy and what it means for us to have inherited both the real gains toward justice that the civil rights era achieved and to have inherited the reality that many of our own family members and church leaders were decidedly disengaged or even opposed to Dr. King and the work of racial justice. I learned some things I didn't know about both Martin Luther King Jr. and the Church of the Brethren in this episode, and I have to admit that they are challenging to me. I hope you learn a few things from Tori and Gimbia, and I also hope that you feel the challenge inherent in the way they remind us of Jesus's call to action. Thank you for taking the time to come out and talk to me today um, for the Dunker Punk podcast. As Director of Intercultural Ministries, what do you work on on a daily basis? As Director of Intercultural Ministries, I work on a lot of what comes across my desk. It tends to be a very responsive office. Overall, I would say there are two real focuses to the work. One is really engaging with congregations that identify as multicultural or intercultural and engaging with them to maintain and build their relationship with the denomination, 
to invite them into opportunities to participate in ways that they may not be familiar with or not have done in the past, and also to keep the denomination connected with their perspectives and stories as part of our growing identity together. The second thrust of my work that tends to be growing these days is the work that sometimes falls under the umbrella of intercultural competency. I've heard people call it uh, anti-racism training, but it's really talking with people who want to engage around the issues of racial justice and equality in our country today in their context oftentimes, more so than in the national way. This is oftentimes the places where I engage most with parts of the Church of the Brethren that would be identified as white. Now, you and I met up um, at the beginning of this month for the National Council of Churches event. Um, it's a Act Now, Unite to End Racism rally. Uh, the goal was to commemorate the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and also to kick off a longer-term uh, programming around ending racism in this country. And, you know, at the beginning of that, when we were standing in the crowd, we had the opportunity to watch an interfaith service focused around themes of racism in the country. And one of the speakers that really impacted me was a man who called out his own denomination for a history of racism. So I was curious uh, if in your work you've come across specific ways in which the Church of the Brethren has perpetuated racial injustice, either in the past or currently. I would really like to start by talking a little bit specifically about the Church of the Brethren and Martin Luther King Jr. We met at this rally because it was also held on the, anniversary, the 50th anniversary of King's assassination, and that was very intentional on the part of the National Council of Churches to hold this day up and to have a larger conversation around this. The Church of the Brethren has a really interesting relationship with that era, 50 years ago, um, and what was happening with Martin Luther King Jr. and what was happening in our denomination. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian pastor, reverend doctor. He also held a doctorate in theology and very much entered the work that he chose to do and was called to from a nonviolent perspective. And as a pacifist church, who also is for generations had held up a nonviolent reading of the gospel, there are ways that this seems like it would have dovetailed really nicely with each other. And it's not entirely clear how that happened or didn't happen. One of the things that is very interesting is that Ralph Smeltzer, who was a denominational employee, we would say now out of Elgin, did go down to Selma and was very active or at least participating, witnessing, in conversation with. And there's some stories about what was his exact impact and it would be really interesting to have somebody who knows a lot more about this on the call. Some people really say, you know, he was, a, he was a very linchpin person, he really built bridges, he was a facilitator between white Christian leaders in, the, in these southern conversations and the, the black leaders who were coming in. Other people say, no, it was a much smaller role. The other touch point that we have that's very interesting is in the mid-60s, Martin Luther King Jr. came to Chicago and in Chicago was doing some work around desegregation and integration of housing and schools. King at that point actually has a quote that says the anger and hate-filled mobs that he saw in Chicago were worse than anything he saw in Mississippi or Alabama. And so that was a very hard time for him to realize just how entrenched the racism was across the country. It wasn't just a problem peculiar to the South. 
and that he didn't feel like he was going to be successful. In fact, his time in Chicago was very short, by all accounts, incredibly unsuccessful. But during that time, the Southern Student Leader College Leadership Council, Student Leadership Council, had an office in the Church of the Brethren First Church in Chicago. And they were using that office space. That was um, an organization that King worked with extensively, so he also used that space. He preached from the pulpit there several times. He worked very closely with uh, Reverend Tom Wilson, or Brother Tom Wilson, who was the pastor there at the time. And that was in the mid-60s, so we already had this relationship ongoing. Manchester College has a very unique relationship with the King family, including with uh, Miss Coretta Scott King. Martin Luther King Jr. actually spoke there a few months before he died. And so Manchester College has been holding an appreciation that you can follow online on Facebook. They've been doing a lot of reflecting on that time. So the Church of the Brethren was very much, particularly in the earlier part of the 60s, connecting with, in some way, the work that was happening that King was doing. There are numerous accounts of pastors. The pastor from University Park at the time went to the March on Washington, where he gave the I Have a Dream speech. The Highland Avenue pastor came. A number of people across the denomination will have stories that connect with that time and that space. And I would say connect in a way that not necessarily is leadership, but definitely as participants and witnesses standing alongside and wanting to ally. One of the most interesting things was Messenger Magazine to me. Uh, Messenger Magazine, do you get it, Tori? Yep. And do you read it faithfully? Cover yep, to cover. Yep. Oh, oh, oh absolutely. Offices mentioned. And <laughs> At the time, one of the things that's really easy to forget is that we didn't have the internet. So we didn't have these other ways of getting news. Cable news as it exists now didn't exist then. There were sort of a few news stations and there were a few, you'd get your, your town paper, your, your regional paper. But this idea of this whole world of news and commentary being at our fingertips didn't exist. And so Messenger Magazine really served a purpose of um, connecting the denomination with national news and connecting a lot of sort of op-ed and commentary as well. And it was very intentional, talking about Martin Luther King Jr., talking about his work. And at the time of his death, um, so he, he died in early April, the 4th of April, and then later on about in their publishing cycle, so for the next available publishing cycle, they published an obituary. It was entitled, Who Was He? He was the Moses of his time. He led his people out of the hard bondage of slavery. He cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard his voice. The Lord saw the affliction, the toil, the oppression of his people. And Martin Luther King led his people out through the Red Sea of Blood, through cans and bottles and spit. At last, he said, I have climbed the mountain and I have seen the promised land. But like Moses, King did not cross over into the promised land. Who was he? He was the Isaiah of his time. In the year 1963, with 200,000 people at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, he saw a vision. I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day in the Red Hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And when the voice asked, who shall go for us to fulfill this dream? Martin Luther King said, here I am, send me. And he led the march. Who was he? 
He was a Jeremiah of his time. He believed in peace. He lived for peace. In the face of violence, he was nonviolent. Pressures from government, pressures from blacks and whites came to silence him on war, on the Vietnam carnage. Do not mix civil rights in opposition to war, counseled many of his friends. But the beleaguered prophet said, I will not be intimidated. I will stand for peace. Who was he? He was the Amos of his time. To a prosperous, hard-hearted people, more attuned to the property values than human values, more spiritual and law-abiding than just and compassionate, he pleaded, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Who was he? He was the early church of his time. He was in jail. There he sang, there he prayed. And once the apostle wrote an epistle, letter from Birmingham jail, where he went, others went also, stirring up and inciting the crowds. They called him a revolutionary. He and his crowd upset things. People were disturbed when he set his face to go to Selma, to Chicago, to Washington. Who was he? He was a man with a name appropriate to his life, Martin Luther. He brought a new reformation to the church, to society, and he died. He died marching for garbage men and peasants in Vietnam and you and me. What a way to die. What a way to live. This issue of Messenger magazine generated a lot of mail. Sometimes I've heard it said the most mail of any publication that we did. And we were not of one mind as a church. We have letters that span the political spectrum of the nation at the time. One of the things that's really easy to forget is at the time of his death in 1968, by opinion polls, including the Gallup poll, which we still use variations of today, Martin Luther King Jr. was rated as negative and unpopular to the rate of 66 to 75 percent of Americans, which is an amazing number to think about. Somewhere between one and three and three and four Americans had a really negative opinion of him at the time of his death. Some of that had to do with his increased outspokenness about the war on poverty and the war in Vietnam, his increased pacifist stance, and some of it was still a holdover from his racial work, but we've, we often forget that. Fifty years later, most of us have a very positive impact. He, um, frequently makes a list for top, uh, American list for top 10 most influential positive leaders and people. But at the time when he was alive, he hadn't really since the early 60s after he won the um, Nobel Prize, his popularity started really going down as his outspokenness on issues beyond the um, desegregation in the South rose. And it's interesting to come back 50 years later and think about what it means that he was so unpopular at that time and so unpopular with the church. Messenger magazine for the rest of that year continued to publish letters where writers went back and forth and people in the church would name somebody that would wrote a letter in your X issue and then it, you know this letter in your June issue and we would go back and forth with each other. And it was a time of real divisiveness and in fact it was also a time of great racial anxiety. Some polls Polls say that we're now experiencing racial anxiety even greater than that time, so it becomes increasingly important to look at the issues of that time. You mentioned numbers like you know sixty-five to seven was it sixty-five to seventy-five percent mm-hmm. of people had negative view of MLK. 
Do you think that the positive view now is because people's attitudes towards the issues have changed or because they have a misunderstanding of what he was speaking about in the first place? I would think it's a little bit of both, maybe a lot of both. Definitely our attitudes about race have changed. There's no question about that. Our attitudes about race have changed a lot and in very complicated ways. It's not easy to say that it's one, one thing or another, but our attitudes about race have changed faster than the realities about race. Um, the Economic Policy Institute released a study that I really actually like sharing a lot because when we think about the last 50 years, most of us are pretty ready to say, oh yeah, let's pat ourselves on the back, we're doing a lot better. And King, particularly towards the end of his life, talked a lot about economic realities, and so I think it's interesting to look at the economic realities of 1968 to now. So here are a few statistics that I think are really important to consider. In 1968, 6.7% of African Americans were unemployed. In 2017, it was 7.5%. So a slight increase on both times, but in both eras, this is approximately double the white unemployment rate. Home ownership in the last 50 years has remained virtually unchanged for African Americans. It hovers around 40%. This is 30 percent points behind the rate for whites. So whites are about 70% likely to own their own homes compared to about 40% of African Americans, and this really matters as you begin to look at wealth and intergenerational wealth and stability in families. The share of African Americans incarcerated has tripled, so when you look at mass incarceration of the last uh, 50 years, it's gotten a lot worse, and this is really coming out of the end of a Jim Crow era where there's sort of a lot of talk about the beginning of um, the way that the black people were criminalized for staying in open spaces, rights to gather, and again, we're still seeing this being a case where disproportionately African Americans are likely to be imprisoned, so African Americans are 6.4 times more likely. And this is really a continuation of the trends that we're, we're seeing that King was worried about at the time. So these numbers, are, they're indicative of broader structural problems. And as an individual seeking to you know, make a difference and you know, end racism in the, in the terms of the NCC's rally, how do we as individuals address such a huge problem when something that's structural just seems so beyond our capability as an individual to address? I believe that to address a problem, we first have to be aware of what the problem is, able to name it and understand its scope. So when we're celebrating these 50 years that have changed and we're really excited about the ways that we see our country having moved forward, we also have to be very honest and hold ourselves accountable and look very directly at numbers that say there's a problem. And those numbers oftentimes come in the space of looking at educational experiences, home ownership, incarceration. It's also important to look at, at numbers related, related to the experience of violence in other forms as well, including sexualized violence and how, how it's experienced. With all of these things, they can feel very far away and they can feel very big. But in fact, this has been created by individual choice and individual buy-in 
along the way. Redlining, which is one of the things that really impacts home ownership, impacts school experiences, this thing that King wasn't really able to do in Chicago, to desegregate neighborhoods, to make it possible for African Americans to own their homes and for those homes to increase in value. When you look at the history of our denomination, you also see a history of white flight. And white flight is one of those things that was enabled by and further enabled redlining. This means that we made choices to leave neighborhoods, we made choices to pull our children from schools, and we've inherited those legacy of those choices made by previous generations. And so now as we begin to re-enter this conversation, we have the opportunity, we have the choice to actively re-engage. I think this is really uncomfortable to talk about though, because we begin to talk about wealth. And in the denomination, and even personally, I'd say I experienced this, there's a really desire to say, well, I'm not, I'm not the wealthy. I'm not the wealthy. We're very, you know, we're very simple. We live very modestly. And this space between the, the super wealthy and the middle class is growing. So those of us that I would say have been middle class oftentimes feel like, well, we're not as middle class as we were, and we're certainly not the wealthy that are part of the problem. But even when you look at averages, today the median net worth of white families is $171,000, and it's 10 times that of black families. So black families are looking at approximately $17,000. That's huge. And that means that the median, the middle of us, has a lot more wealth than the median of black families. And why this is really uncomfortable, I think, is actually scriptural. You know, in many ways, when we come and we ask ourselves, you know, what can I do to change this? What can I do to change this? I'm reminded of in scripture when the rich man comes to Christ and he says, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And Christ says, well, you know, did you honor your parents? Did you honor God? And he's like, yeah, 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 I've got all that. I've got all that. And he's like, I really want to like do the right thing. This is no longer about like, am I going to go to hell or not, right? This is about really wanting to do do the heavenly thing. And he's really sort of challenging Christ, like what is it that I have to do that's gonna make a really big difference? And Christ looks at him and said, give away everything to the poor and come follow me. And scripture says the man went away sad. And I often read the scripture and go away from it sad. What it means to be told like, you actually need to give everything up to really identify with the rich man in this story, to really dwell and say like, I am the rich man. If Statistically speaking, this is really the wealth that doesn't feel like enough to me is actually a lot. And so I am rich in this context. And Christ turns to us and say, give everything up to follow me. And we walk away because we're not willing to do this. And we have it clad in so many wonderful ways to help ourselves feel better about this. We say, well, who would I give it to? The poor is a big thing and the poor are very irresponsible. We can't possibly give money to the poor because they wouldn't know what to do with it. It would go to bad places. I would need to check the guide star rating before I gave it away. We say, um, you know, I have to finish paying off my student loans before I give it all away. I, I, God couldn't possibly mean for me to be homeless. Like if you give it all away, that's a real reality. I could be homeless. Oh my gosh, that would be terrible. And we also buy into a cultural gospel of prosperity, which says, well, I have good things because I'm a good person and because God loves me and blesses me. So really, these are the things God means for me to have. This isn't richness that I've taken. This is just the richness that's been blessed to me. And we have all these sort of subconscious or barely conscious layers. 
And it's a lot harder for us to name like, actually, Chris, I don't really want to follow you. I want to admire you from a distance, but I don't want to follow you. Not in a way that's going to be sacrificing. I don't want to send my kids to a school where I'm like, they would be the richest kid there and they might be one of the few white kids. And I don't want to send my kids to that school, even though maybe if I were to give a portion of what I would pay to be in a better school, whether that's paying private school fees or higher land property values to be in that space. No, 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 I feel more comfortable being over here separate from the poor, separate from that call and that space. And you know, I couldn't do this to my child. I can't make my child suffer. Like just because I choose to fall across, I can't make my, you know, make that decision for my child. And we constantly twist and turn because Christ has us on the hook. And you know, it is painful. It is really painful, but the scripture again tells us the story of Zacharias, who was a tax collector. And Zacharias gets called by Christ and sort of named like, you know, this is, this is your sin. Your sin is this collection of wealth that's been at the expense of other people. And, you know, he did it totally legally. I mean, he was a tax collector. He was obeying the letter of the law, right? He wasn't breaking the laws. He was doing this completely legally. But it wasn't righteous. It wasn't right. And when he repents of this, he says, I'm going to pay back everything. And to those whom I, from whom I took too much, I'm going to pay back even more than what I took. And he says, I'm going to give away half my wealth. And this is the example. So we have these two stories in the New Testament. One of the poor man going away sad, and the other of Zacharias who says, like, no, I can do this. I can commit to this. And I think as contemporary Christians, we're terrified by that. As contemporary Americans, we're terrified by that because so much of our value and self-worth is tied up in it. I'd really like to say, like, you know, you can attend Joint Surge and you can attend, uh, attend these meetings and, uh, you know, preach about this from your pulpit and have a black friend and these things will be great. And these are all really great things, but they don't really adjust the structure of what a country that has built a hierarchy around race has done. Which is, it is, it's so much bigger than any one of us. But the finding a way in your own life to give back and to give sacrificially in response to that is huge. Is really, really, really huge. And I would say this is something that even King struggled with. You know, there are a lot of times, and it, somebody even writes into Messenger Magazine and says this, well, if he'd never left Atlanta, he wouldn't have died. Um, <laughs> And King gave sacrificially of his life, not just at the point of the assassination, but he had an opportunity to be a middle-class pastor and to never leave the safety. And I think the question that he asked and the question that he pushed towards was this war on poverty and he wanted to create a tent city on the National Mall. This is what he was organizing for when he was assassinated. And a lot of people believe that this may have been why he was assassinated. He's going to bring a multiracial coalition into this space. And I do think that the thing that we can do is be a part of a multiracial coalition and realize that, the, what the co realize that it's actually incredibly disquieting to be in that space and say, wow, what's going to, what needs to happen is something as profound as a tent city. Are, are any of us ready for it? Like, if we were to be in a space where somebody were to come and say, you know, this, it's time, we're going to do this tent city. I'd want to see brethren out there. I'd want to see brethren out there. I'd want to see brethren ready to participate, which means I have to ask myself, am I ready? Would I be prepared to walk out of my house and into a tent? And when they did the Occupy movement, I wasn't ready. 
I wasn't ready to join people in Standing Rock. And I'm asking myself again now, like, what stands between me and being ready? What stands between me and being able to say, I can give this away and follow? Yeah, I think you've given us a lot to think about um, as a church and as individuals. These are a really important topics. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. What stands between me and being ready? What stands between me and being able to say, I can give this away and follow Jesus? These are really hard questions. Just like the parable of the rich man that Gimbia mentioned, it can be really troubling for us to hear Jesus calling us to give up something, especially when that thing that we're being called to give up is part of what we feel like keeps us safe or protected. Gimbia reminded us that Dr. King was intent on economic justice toward the end of his life. And I think that's really important, and I know it's really challenging. What is it that keeps us so protective of our money and our economic status? I learned not too long ago about a concept called generational wealth. Do you know about this? Basically, it's the idea that how much money or how many assets you as an individual have is directly connected to how much money or how many assets your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had. That wealth flows through families. And when families live for generations without being able to accumulate wealth, it's nearly impossible for their children to move from poverty to economic stability. There was this 2016 study by the Institute for Policy Studies and the Corporation for Economic Development, and it found that in America, the average black household would need 228 years to accumulate as much wealth as the average white household today. For the average Latino family, it would take 84 years to accumulate as much wealth as the average white household in our country. 228 years. Just for perspective, 228 years ago was the year 1790. The study said that absent significant policy interventions or a seismic change in the American economy, people of color will never close the gap. Gimbia reminded us that we've inherited a legacy of choices made by previous generations. Sometimes that can feel totally impossible, that we just inherit this, even though we didn't choose it. But Gimbia also reminded us that we get to engage that legacy. We get to learn about it and question it and decide whether or not we want to leave a legacy similar or different from the one that we inherited. It starts with learning the realities of racial and economic injustice, with refusing to remain ignorant, with opening our eyes to the truth of the world around us. This conversation reminded me of one of my favorite scripture passages from Ephesians 5. This is the common English Bible translation, which I really love because it starts out this way. Nobody should deceive you with stupid ideas. God's anger comes down on those who are disobedient because of this kind of thing. So you shouldn't have anything to do with them. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live your life as children of light. Light produces fruit that consists of every sort of goodness, justice, and truth. Therefore, test everything to see what's pleasing to the Lord, and don't participate in the unfruitful actions of darkness. Instead, you should reveal the truth about them. It's embarrassing to even talk about what certain persons do in secret, but... 
Everything exposed to the light is revealed by the light. And everything that is revealed by the light becomes light. Therefore it says, wake up, sleeper, get up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't you love that? Everything exposed to the light is revealed by the light. And everything that is revealed by the light becomes light. That even the most impossible feeling reality of injustice, oppression, even the worst darkness, exposed, revealed, becomes light. Here's your challenge, Dunkerpunks. This week, find a way to shine some light in the dark places of our history, even if it's painful, even if it's challenging. Go ask your family, your grandparents, or your church family, one of your favorite older women or men, about what they were up to when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Ask them how they felt about it. Maybe go find those letters where our church argued about racism in Messenger magazine, or maybe in your own congregation's old newsletter. Read them, even the ones that are hard to hear. And then, Dunkerpunks, think about what Jesus might be calling you to do here and now. Are there things Jesus is asking you to give up? What's standing in the way of giving them up? Are there places Jesus is asking you to speak up? What's standing in between you and the bravery to do it? How do you want to be able to tell the story of this time and place when your grandchildren ask you about it in another 50 years? The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a team of contributors from around the United States who think and live like brethren. Our audio today was edited by Kevin Schatz and our music is by Jacob Krauss. Our executive producer is Suzanne Lay, and I'm Dana Cassell, really excited to be one of your hosts. To contact us, to get involved, or to support our work, you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or find us at dunkerpunks.com or arlingtoncob.com slash dpp. Go out there, Dunkerpunks, and find some light. I just want to be me